This is Good Together, the podcast that inspires you to create change in the world every day. I'm your host, Laura Alexander-Wittig, CEO and founder of Brightly, the number one destination for conscious consumers around the world. At Good Together, we value the planet over perfection and believe that you can make positive things happen for the planet every day by being a conscious consumer and an informed citizen. Listen in as I chat with various experts about living and consuming responsibly. Together, listeners, I am so excited to welcome a fellow podcaster here today to Good Together. Uh, we have Clarissa Y. Uh, she's the host of the Climate Cuisine podcast, and she's a freelance journalist and video producer currently working on her first ever cookbook, Made in Taiwan. And we're talking about all things climate cuisine. So, welcome, Clarissa. Thanks for having me. Yes. So, can you tell us a little bit about how you got started talking about climate cuisine and what really inspired your podcast? Yeah, I think it's um, growing up in Los Angeles. You, you know, the the buzz term sustainability and eating organic is really big. And then, you know, I've been a food writer for over a decade now, and I've tra- had the luxury of traveling all, all over the world and, um, you know, interviewing indigenous tribes in Asia and Latin America, um, and also taking permaculture courses and growing my own food as well. And I really just feel like the conversation on sustainable cuisine can be pushed even further and focused on our specific area in the world where we live. Um, because so much of sustainability right now is these like big blanket situations to cover up, you know, the, the problems that mass globalization and capitalism has generated. Um, but we're not thinking locally and, um, based on where we are. And it's just this sort of presence that I wanted to bring to the conversation that inspired the podcast. That's great. And so would you say your goal with the podcast is to really help people better understand how their local behaviors and initiatives affect climate change through eating? Is is that one one of the goals? Exactly. Um it's almost similar to the, the concept of mindfulness but with mm, yeah. food and just being mindful of where you are. And I don't even think I like realized this growing up um in LA. I didn't um, think about the climate and think about the fact that there was a drought, um, what plants grew well there. Um, and then I somehow got onto uh, learning about, you know, just weeds that grow or and I went on foraging tours. Um, and then I just saw how much food there was that just grew in abundance and that grow easily. Um, but these are not things that are easily found in our grocery store um, because, probably can't make a lot of money growing them. Yeah. It doesn't fit into our global food system. Um, so I think if people just sort of rethink the way they think about food or how they can access food, I think we can really change the system that way. That's so interesting. So wait, I want to get clarity. So you went foraging in LA and you were you were yeah. picking uh, you were picking weeds like in LA. That's amazing. Yeah. So then it's like so I'm located in LA in Arcadia and it's really close to Pasadena. Okay. Um, and there's 
just like this park we went to and there was just a field of stinging nettle um, that's yep. very common all over. Um, and you can pick it, put it into soup. Um, and then my husband's um, Swedish. And when I went to Sweden to his summer house, like there was just stinging nettle all over. And he's like, yeah, my, my grandmother, like that was an old wives thing that they use, but we don't really do it anymore. Um, but it's delicious. You can make it into miso soup. Um, you can bake it. It's very much like spinach. But there's that like extra layer of like dealing, obviously, <laughs> with the sting on the nettles. And then you have dandelions, which um, yeah. are on every single lawn in America. <laughs> yes. Um, and the, um, I'm forgetting the name, Oxalis. Um, it's the little clovers that appear on lawns. You shouldn't okay. be eating. So that's not the name. I, I forget the name. But there's these little clovers that grow on lawns all over. And they're completely edible. But you shouldn't be eating a lot of them. But they're a great garnish um, on a salad or so. Um, so again, just like figuring out these things that are considered weeds, um, and just realizing we don't use any of them. And the fact that I think like grass is one of the most largest, like grass is one of the most cultivated crops in America for our lawns and that you can't even eat grass. Um, we could be using that space to let the weeds grow wild and use that to supplement our diet. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, and to be clear, listeners, like obviously foraging and, and learning what to pick, how to eat it is, is something that you definitely should do a little bit more research in, obviously, um, before you go out and eat that just because of pesticides and stuff. But Clarice is totally right. Like, in my opinion, I feel like there's such a, a lack of knowledge around what's going on with our sort of local food climates. And, you know, we're all so excited about eating food that's found across the world. And I think that's an amazing thing to do. But I, I think we oftentimes neglect what's happening in our own backyard, whether exactly. it's grown there or even like local recipes, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think taking inspiration from the indigenous people that were in our area as well is something that is great. There's this great book um, for people, listeners who are in California. It's called Tending the Wild. Um by an anthropologist named, I think, Kat Anderson. And what she did was she documented um, how the Native Americans in Yosemite, how they, you know, how they cultivated the land, um, how they harvested acorns. Um, and then you can, I just feel like after reading that book, I got a lot of inspiration. And just sort of when I hiked or walked around was like, this, you know, used to all be food, but obviously we can't. <laughs> eat it anymore. We don't have the yeah. system set up for it. Um, so just taking inspiration from the people who have been in our places. Um, Absolutely. Years. Yeah. And I think, you know, at, at the beginning, you talked a little bit about the role of capitalism and sort of it, how it has very much been responsible for a lot of the issues that we we see with our current food supply chain. Um, but one thing that I also was just actually talking to a friend who recently arrived here from Brazil, and she was basically like, look, like when I go down to sit with my family to eat, we eat Brazilian food. Like we don't, we're not like, oh, let's go eat, you know, Mexican food or Chinese food. Like it's not something that's within our culture. And so I would imagine that you've probably discovered that it's a, you know, our desire to have a bunch of foods kind of given to us from around the world that aren't necessarily native is very much an American thing. Is that right? <laughs> Not necessarily. I think it's, okay. um, I see that this in a lot of places that have a colonial history. So I think it is very American. So you're right in that regards. But um, I currently live in Taiwan, which um, is 
originally, it was originally populated by Austronesian indigenous people. They're still here, obviously, but then it was colonized by the Chinese. Um, so it's the same thing as in America. We are eating things that don't necessarily grow well here because of our colonial influences, um, where it would be a lot more sustainable um, to be eating things that the indigenous people ate. And so a really good example is that Taiwan is one of the only subtropical countries that um, eat uh, short grain rice and short grain rice does not grow well um, in the tropics. So they had to spend a lot of years breeding it so that it worked. Um, originally, they had long grain rice over here. And that's just an example of um, the colonists that were here. They came from Japan um, a while ago and they just like really wanted <laughs> their short grain rice. So they yeah. spent... Um, many decades breeding it and finally made it work. Um, so I think this is true in a lot of countries, including the United States, which is the biggest example um, where you're just, you know, bringing the food of your ancestors, spending so much effort trying to make it work where really yeah. you could have just been looking around and seeing what the people around you ate. Yeah. And I, I mean, most of the time, I feel like when we try and duplicate things, an example of this was my husband and I went to Thailand. We had an amazing time there. And when we go, when we travel internationally, we usually like to take a cooking class that we can kind of bring back part of the culture with us. And we loved learning how to make um, a green curry paste. We came back here, went to our local Asian supermarket, we're able to get most of the ingredients. And of course we made it, but it's no way is it, you know, going to hold a candle to those fresh ingredients that were sourced right there. And so there's nothing to matter with, with this or the story, but I think it's just, like you said, being a little bit more mindful about it and thinking about like, yeah, maybe that rather than focusing on producing like subpar versions of what we're trying to get after we should focus a little bit more on the local bit so i mean exactly. i think it's a really interesting way to think and honestly not one that i've i've really really um you know tried to go about my own life so i think it's a really cool unlock um i feel like kind of expanding on this idea of you know the global supply chain um you had a really interesting um insight that you shared in the trailer for your podcast saying Global supply chains have made our diets homogenous, and the average consumer is oblivious to the amount of energy and manpower it takes to produce our food. Um, and so tell us a little bit more about like why it matters to think more about local food. Like what's the impact on the environment? Like I'm, I'm curious, like we've talked about like, you know, how much we, we think people should do this, but like why? Why should people do this? Yeah. And so when I say our diet's homogenous is you go in a grocery store and you only see one type of banana or you just okay. see one yep. type of avocado. Um, and that banana is um, grown in a Latin American country and shipped over and they're grown in these monoculture um, systems where it's devastating to the soil. And in fact, there's actually a disease that's wiping out um, all the bananas now because of these giant um, monoculture systems. So, um, and same with avocados, as most people know, you know, it requires a lot of water, a lot of input. Um, and yeah, I don't think we necessarily think of that. I think now people are sort of being aware, like, let's not eat beef, let's not eat meat, let's like shift to a vegan diet, which I think is great. But still, a lot of these ingredients are require fossil fuels in order to get to our plate. They're farmed in these giant systems that are not sustainable or harmful for the environment. 
Um, and even though they're probably not as bad as, you know, eating steak every single day um, in terms of your footprint, they still have an impact. Um, so I think with my podcast, what I've just been trying to do is push it a little bit further, um, push that concept of eating local um, to another level and think about, okay, what grows well in my area? What can I um, manage by myself? Yes. And I, I love this this thought process as well, because you know at Brightly and Good Together, we're all about helping people live eco-friendly lives however they can. So we do it without judgment. We invite people to make small swaps. And we oftentimes run into people who are, you know, vegans and they've been vegans for a very long time. And of course we support them in that. Like it's an amazing thing to do for the environment, but for a lot of people, it's just not possible for a variety of reasons. And I think, um, you know, the, the, the temptation is, is out there for us to say, well, if you've removed all animal products from your diet, you're, you know, doing the best you possibly can. And I think the word best, there's just so much gray area there, especially when you're considering, you know, somebody who potentially is, is using a lot of ingredients in their, you know, plant focused diet that are not grown around them. So again, listeners, we're not saying that that's, you know, like a terrible thing or anything, but we are wanting to highlight this like gray area, right? Yeah. And like, all I want to do is, you know, provide an inspiration on how to you know, rethink what sustainability means. Because I think yes. it's great we're having this convert, like the people are finally aware that, yeah, eating meat is not great um, in terms of the footprint, but there are other um, parts that one can do um, in shifting their diet that, you know, takes a closer step to that um, sustainability goal. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about that. Like, what are some things you recommend people start doing as they become more mindful about the way they're eating? Yeah. Um, so I'm, my podcast really sort of focuses again on what's in your area. So I'll yeah. use my first season, which is the tropics as an example. So people living in Hawaii or Florida could probably relate. Um, so for example, like we all know what spinach is, but then I have, a, there's a spinach called Malabar spinach, which grows like a weed. You can grow it as a house plant if you have um, like a window sill that That's has cool. full sun. Yeah. And it just like grows like crazy. It has a bit of a, a mucusy texture like okra. Um, but in okay. India, they use it to make curry. Or I interviewed a woman who like loved the berries and she like crushed it and like dyed her hair, um, her daughter's hair purple um, as like a fun <laughs> That's am- thing. That's amazing. Um, yeah. And it's just, it like grows so easily and it doesn't die. Um, and imagine if you were using that instead of, you know, the baby spinach that was grown in a container um, shipped yeah. in from across, you know, um, across the nation. Um, so those are the shifts that I have been recommending. Obviously, this isn't for everyone. It's more of just, you know, it's more people who have the time or who have you know, are into gardening or are into experimenting a little bit more. Um, yes. Yeah. And then another one that I really love is there's a perennial cilantro called culantro. Um, okay. And it tastes exactly like cilantro, but it grows, um, again, all year round. When I was in Costa Rica, I uh, volunteered on a permaculture farm and this was like 
literally a weed. Like I would step on it every single day um, <laughs> on the way to the kitchen. And yeah, you, you can use it exactly like cilantro. And it's used a lot in um, Vietnamese cooking um, and also Puerto Rican cooking. So a lot of these things aren't these like exotic plants that I plucked out of obscurity. These are things yeah. that other cultures um, have been using. And it's like if you live in a climate with you know, a similar climate, like if you're in Hawaii or Florida, you can be growing these or asking your local farmer to grow these. And the beauty of perennials is that they grow for a year or longer. So you don't have to till the land. You don't have to yeah. pull it out and, you know, put it in more fertilizer. You can just kind of let it go. Um, so taking baby steps like this. Um, That's amazing. Sort of what my recommendation <laughs> is. Yeah. Yeah, we love cilantro at my house. And granted, I live in Seattle where lots of things grow, but it's not quite a tropical environment. So I don't know about growing culantro. I'll look into it though. Um, but yeah, I feel like a lot of times people will ask me this exact thing, which is, okay, I'm not a big gardener. You're telling me I should grow more of my own food. It's kind of intimidating to me. Like I don't want to do it. And so one thing that we've talked a lot about, and it's, you just literally just mentioned it too, which is like, you don't have to grow all of your own food. Like that's overwhelming, but you can be mindful about what you use a lot of. So let's pretend I lived in Florida um, and I realized I use a lot of cilantro. I could literally go out and, and grow that myself rather than having to get, um, you know, new herbs from the grocery store all the time. There's also better ways to store herbs once you get them. We have a bunch of content about that on TikTok because storing herbs once you get them is is like a really big unlock to keeping that food that you bought fresh, right? So so yeah. we're, we're reducing food waste. Um, and then there's also, I'm excited, there's been some pretty cool innovations recently in like at-home gardening, like indoor gardens with hydroponics. Mm -hmm. um, we've had the opportunity to review a few of them for Brightly and I, I found them to be really interesting too. So yes, am I growing every single vegetable that I eat on this, you know, sort of system? And is, no, I'm not. <laughs> and is the system kind of expensive? Yes. And so it's, it's just one of these trade-offs that we talk a lot about. Um, but I think, I think that's super interesting. So one thing I kind of wanted to also talk about a little bit more is this question of, um, you know, using more animal products versus not. And so how did you approach the data um, and like the science from this perspective? Because I would imagine like what we talked about a little bit ago is is a little bit controversial to people when they think about like, oh, I was told if I took away all animal products from my diet, I'd be doing better. Like how, how did you approach that um, that hypothesis? I think I, it's not necessarily from a data standpoint as it is just from a practical standpoint yeah. in my own life. Like I am not vegan or vegetarian. Um, I am a food writer and I've write, I'm writing a cookbook about Taiwanese cuisine, which is just filled with a lot of pork. So it's like a bit unavoidable um, for my job right now, which is unfortunate. Um, and I think about a lot of people who you know, um, my parents, they're very Asian and they would never think about, you know, taking out meat from their diet. Yeah. Um, so I just want to do it from a way that is approachable to my family and friends that I know. Um, and again, it's that topic that we talked about earlier, just taking baby steps. Um, I do think cutting out meat is the one of the mo more direct and impactful things that one can do. One can um, change in their lifestyle to really make an impact. Um, but again, like if you're not willing to cut out meat, um, 
you can eat it once a week and then try other things. And I think this, again, is just um, an ingredient or a tool you can throw in your toolbox um, to try to shift the diet a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And so as somebody is examining their diet and trying to be more mindful, um, do you recommend any like, you know, carbon footprint calculators or like resources for people if they're like, hey, my favorite salad contains avocados, spinach, um, cherry tomatoes, and I live in um, Iceland. <laughs> you know, like, how do, how do I figure out, I mean, obviously, Iceland's maybe a little bit too, uh, too obvious of an example. Maybe I live in the Midwest of the United States. Like, how do I figure out, like, how long that those things came to, you know, how long those things traveled to me? And how do I like find more local things? Like, how do you, how do you recommend people get started on this? Yeah. And I think that's the unfortunate part. There isn't a lot of transparency and that's kind of done on purpose because that's just how it's set up. But I really like, um, I interviewed them for my podcast. They're called foodprint.org. And um, what you can do is like browse an ingredient and it can tell you, um, if that ingredient is generally, generally sustainable. And again, as you know, sustainability is such a loaded term. It can mean so many things. Um, but what Foodprint does is they really do take ingredient by ingredient and they sort of break down how it's grown and whether or not it's good for the environment. Um, so that's a really good website. It's uh, foodprint.org. Yeah, I'm definitely going to check that out. Um, and actually, that brings me to another question that I have for you because – you know, it's rare that we get to talk with another podcaster on this podcast. We probably need to do better with that. But in your work and being able to interview so many interesting people in this space, I love the story you just shared about um, one of your guests dyeing her daughter's hair purple with yeah. some berries. It's amazing. Like, do you have any other like interesting or like fun insights that have come up in conversations that you've had recently? I'd love to know. Yeah. Um, so one, one of the, my favorite, um, episodes I did this season was on the pigeon pea, which is, um, a nitrogen fixer. Um, and actually most legumes are nitrogen fixers. And what it means is that the plant, when you grow it, it will take nitrogen from the air and fix it into the soil. So it's literally a natural fertilizer. Um, and in India, they've been growing this for centuries, um, and it's nothing new. And then when I interviewed my indigenous friend here in Taiwan, she was like, yeah, of course, yeah, we use it and we would rotate it, um, in the fields. And it's like, they just intuitively knew it was a nitrogen fixer. So that was really cool. And then, um, she talked about, um, how it was like a natural Viagra for the tribe and just all of these things <laughs> I never, you know, if you just Google pigeon pea, you'll get a lot of like doll recipes or curry recipes um, uh-huh. or just like how to cook lent- um, how to cook legumes. Um, but like just talking to my friend who like grew up with this and her parents used it as a nitrogen fixer and it wasn't this like hipster new way. It was just very traditional here in Taiwan. Um, that was just so cool. And I think that's just been such a delight on my podcasting journey is like these ingredients are nothing new. Like cultures have been using them for so many years all over the world. It's just sort of relearning about them or shifting our perspective a little bit and taking inspiration um, from other cultures like that. Yeah. And I love that you are, you know, using this as a, as a truly actionable way for people to connect back with indigenous cultures. It's something that lately, I think a lot of us have had on our minds when we think about, you know, colonialism and sort of 
where our cultures are taking up space from, um, you know, from communities that didn't have a choice about it. Right. And so by being able to engage with communities in this way, I think it's a really good way for people to just like get out of the, I don't know, the NPR um, audio that you hear about it and you kind of listen to and, and turn your brain off. It's something, it's an actionable way for people to engage. So I love that you bring that perspective and that, you know, you're actually actively working with communities to shine a light on that. So are there other examples of this that you can, you, you've talked to, um, you know, with these communities? Yeah. I mean, one resounding, resounding theme is that these people aren't necessarily precious about what has necessarily been in their land for thousands of years. Like the pigeon pea example I gave Mm -hmm. you, pigeon peas aren't indigenous to Taiwan. They came from India um, many years, many centuries ago, but they, the indigenous people were like, this grows really well here and it benefits the soil and it comes from a similar climate zone. Let's grow it. So I think it's just that spirit um, that they embody because they lived so close. They live so close with the land. Um, that we can take inspiration from. Yes, that's amazing. I love it. <laughs> um, okay, so I, you know, I'm just like kind of looking through our various questions. I mean, we've unlocked so many interesting things. I feel like I, actually one one question that we wrote down to ask you, and I think is is an interesting thought process. So like we've talked a little bit about like how the grocery store is so homogenous when you walk into it today. Like, what would you say? a grocery store of the future, if we were to be more mindful, like what would that look like? Yeah. I mean, I would love, again, I'll do the tropics again, if you don't mind. Cause that's, no, that's fine. Where hey, it's where you're at. From, yeah. <laughs> from the last season, but like, um, bananas, I would love to see all the thousands of varieties there are. We have um, I'm growing like five different types of bananas on my little farm. There are wow. varieties that taste like ice cream. Um, there are varieties that taste like custard. Um, same with sweet potatoes. We have watery sweet potatoes. We have um, starchy sweet potatoes. Um, and so I think it's just things, just more variety um, of things. And I'm not just talking like rainbow carrots or like different shades of kale. Um, yeah. But it just the reason why diversity is even a thing in the natural world is because if there's a disease, you know, it will just wipe out one strain, but then other varieties will thrive. And the fact that uh, we only see one type of banana or a couple types of apples is really problematic because we have seen this in history already. When a disease breaks out, that strain will die and then people will have to genetically engineer or pump in fertilizers um, to save that. And that really is what happened to the banana banana. And that's how the Cavendish banana was even born as well. It's a um, banana that's not even that tasty, but it's bred because it can be transported very well all over the world. Um, So yeah, my grocery store of the future would just um, embrace that diversity. And I don't think it would be as packed as grocery stores now. It wouldn't be big, um, but it would have a lot more variety. Yeah. I mean, I didn't even know. I mean, first of all, I am a banana, like, I don't know, like, but I wouldn't say banana enthusiast by any means. I kind of eat them occasionally because I don't really like the way they taste. And so if I was going to eat a banana and it tasted like ice cream or custard, you can bet I would be a banana lover because the bananas here do not taste that good. So I'm going to like come to your farm and try those bananas because that sounds amazing. Um, But, you know, one thing that kind of inspired me as you were talking about, too, is 
you know, we know that people are not eating right in general around the world, like especially here in the U.S. There's such, you know, unfortunately high rates of obesity and, and reliance on processed food. And as I as I thought more when you were talking about like the the blanding of the banana, it really kind of reminded me about how our diets in general are just so bland or they they've been they've been forced to be that way because of the systems that are in place. So I, I would love it too if the grocery store of the future with all of these different varieties of things that were grown, you know, close to home could inspire people to eat, you know, more fresh food, right? And eat more healthy. I think that'd be an amazing byproduct, right? <laughs> Yeah. And I also just think it's also our culture of food or how we create recipes or cook dinner for ourselves. We sort mm -hmm. of think of this aspirational dish that we have eaten before our moms cooked for us. And we're like, okay, let's gather all those ingredients and um, make it where really it should be, let's see what's in season and like sort of build a meal around that ingredient. And I learned this when, um, again, I took a permaculture design course in Costa Rica at a farm called Finca Tierra. And it's this couple, um, they are in their thirties. Um, and they bought nine acres of like deserted cattle land and they built like a farm from scratch. They built their own house from bamboo wow. and you, they basically live off of the grid. They have a solar panel. So there's like Wi-Fi a little bit during the day, but at night there's no Wi-Fi. Uh, their water is harvested from the jungle and they grow most of their own food. And if they wanted to, obviously they'll imp like they'll buy stuff from the grocery store sometimes to supplement their diet. But if they really wanted to, they could completely not leave their farm um, wow. and be self-sufficient. And when I was there, um, I stayed there for a month. It was an internship and our job really was to just cook for each other. Um, and it was a group of like 10 students. It was like, let's just cook for each other on based on what is on the farm. And originally it was just such a challenge because it's like, okay, it's only vegan ingredients. It's only, you know, things we can grow. There are no animal products. And you think about, okay, what do we eat for dinner, right? Like we're used to hamburgers, we're used to casseroles. And then there, there are, all we had was like tubers and sweet potatoes um, and um, taro um, and all of these like exotic leaves that were edible, but we didn't know how to eat it. And it was just this re-engineering of our brains and like learning how to make a filling, comfortable meal for ourselves by like having a relationship with these ingredients. And it really took a long time for me to figure it out. But then after a while, we just sort of got the hang of it. And we we're like, yeah, taro kind of tastes nutty. So we can um, pound it and turn it into a burger um, patty. And so we would make burgers with taro. Wow. Um, and it was, it was really hard. Um, but again, <laughs> I think like it took me a month to get there and it's, hard for people who live, you know, their normal lives in the city where you have access to literally everything to push yeah. yourself to do that. Yeah, no, I mean it's it's a question of like creativity, it's a question of time, money, access. Like there's so many things to, that go into it, but I think from my perspective, I I'm going to walk away with this conversation being more mindful about yeah, where my food is coming from and like specifically thinking about the local aspect. I, I think it's fascinating. Um, so uh, Clarissa, we like to typically end the show with asking all of our guests the same question. Um, and so I would love to know from, from your perspective, like what's exciting you the most about what you're seeing in the ethical and sustainable lifestyle movement right now? 
Yeah, and I, I think we touched on it um, a bit, and it's how I think more people are conscious of this whole concept around decolonization. I okay. don't think this was ever a thing um, before, yeah. and I think now people are realizing that if we sort of take inspiration from the people in our land before, you can really change. Um, like it's not we're not reinventing the wheel; we're just um, taking inspiration from the people who were here before. Cause I think so much of the conversation was before was like, how can we change the entire food system and reinvent everything? And I think now people are sort of digging back into the roots and being like our indigenous stewards, they were able to cultivate the land and not ruin it. Um, and so how can we learn from them? So I think that's really exciting. And we, that is completely new as well. Absolutely. No, I, I love the way you've you've thought about that problem and that you continue to have these conversations on your podcast. So um, Good Together listeners, if you're interested in hearing more from Clarissa, definitely check out her podcast called Climate Cuisine. Um, I, I'm going to go and listen to even more episodes. I listened to a few in prep here, but um, I'm going to just go listen to them all right now <laughs> um, and really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today. Of course. Thank you for having me. Um, This was so much fun. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Good Together. To get show notes and more, head to brightly.eco slash podcast. And as a special thank you to our listeners, use code GOODTOGETHER to get 10% off all products in Brightly's brand new shop full of planet positive swaps for your home. Finally, don't forget to join in on the conversation with us on social, where I know you can find us at brightly.eco. Don't forget, we're all on this journey together, so have fun putting the planet first and stay curious.